Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome back to our discussion of House of the Dragon. Today we are talking about episode four, King of the Narrow Sea. We're here to talk about sex, baby. We're here to talk about you and me. I get worse every time I sing on the podcast. And if you think that's going to stop me, you don't know me. Yeah, I, I'm actually cheering you on, Emmett. So keep, keep the fine tunes coming. Um, but <laughs> Excellent. I'm going to plan a whole playlist of songs for me to butcher in upcoming episodes. As long as they're all about sex, because that's, that's what's on topic for today. So. Understood. Understood. Yeah, it was an incredibly sexy episode, and I mean that affectionately. There was hot sex, passionate sex, fucked up sex, incest sex. There were bodies writhing, twisting, um, but it was all kind of generally framed euphoric for the most part, though there was one that was completely lifeless and corpse-like, which we'll also talk about, but um, the whole, you know spectrum of sex was really on display or the spectrum of consensual sex for the most part so um really really enjoyed it really enjoyed seeing some adult content uh it was really uh, refreshing agreed it reminded me of a scene that i love that a lot of people like to make fun of and i get why but i love it the the rave slash orgy scene from the matrix reloaded which is a scene i love just in terms of how it's cut and scored and shot i love everything that goes into it but I also love that it's just it's this this revelatory, unabashed celebration of sex, which a lot of this episode was in the in the full range of it, as you say, showing how you know sex can be anything, depending on who you are and what you bring to it. It can be the best part of your day and the worst part of your day, the best part of your life, the worst part of your life. Yeah, um, and I think part of that was that a lot of the sex in Game of Thrones was either in that quote unquote sex position category or in the yep. highly. Um, intricately tied to the plot and that's where like the jamie cersei stuff or uh you know the sansa ramsey stuff kind of comes into play and obviously there was more sexual assault was a lot more commonly depicted on thrones but um, i think a big thing they did here was to get a woman behind the camera Mm -hmm. uh, claire kilner um who did a great job really navigating and shooting this stuff they also had an intimacy coordinator on set um i know uh, emily carey talked about working with them and how valuable that was especially as a young actor um being put into difficult sex situations and how to um, do that. And I think all that work and thoughtfulness they're putting into um, shooting and writing these sex scenes is actually showing uh, is showing up in the final product. Agreed. There is not the kind of uh, the fratty kind of filter that seemed to be kind of ladled over so many of the sex scenes in Game of Thrones. That's not here. And yeah, I mean, just I think much less a spectacle in this week's episode, but I didn't really even think about that until I read, I think it was Sean Collins' review pointing that out. I didn't even think about it because it was just, even the more intimate stuff was treated as if deserving of spectacular treatment, which I always love to see. Yeah, no, it really took itself seriously in that regard and did not need to rely on, you know, a dragon flying overhead, although we do get some of that too, um, to really, you know, kind of move the plot forward and uh, move our hearts. Uh, why don't we just like kind of start out with where this episode starts out and that's at Storm's End. Finally, we are at Storm's End. Woohoo! Um, and you basically have a setup with Rhaenyra going through a line of suitors. She's a little bit cavalier and checked out while all this is happening. And then we get to see a little bit of the politics of the, you know, high lords, but definitely below House Targaryen and see their kind of intermingling with the Baratheons, the Blackwoods, the Brackens, the Dondarians. Um, it's a nice smorgasbord of Westerosi houses. 
Yeah, I was. I, I have to admit, my geeky little heart skipped a beat because we got to go inside Storm's End, which in the books, in the Song of Ice and Fire, we haven't actually done. Like, we go to Storm's End in the Clash of Kings, but we're just kept entirely on the outside because it's under siege. And, you know, John Khan's headed there. So if when we get the Winds of Winter, we might get to go inside the castle. But this is this is our way inside. I've always loved Storm's End as a setting. That just kind of big, mysterious stone drum of a castle. I've always loved how much it just, it, it suits the Baratheons. Because the Baratheons, like, you know, maybe not Renly. But the rest of them are just kind of like big, hulking, frowning <laughs> guys that just look exactly like their castle. Always loved that. And yeah, I loved that. Yeah, it was the opening shot. Of with just of Rhaenyra just toying with that necklace, and she's a million miles away. She's not really listening to the people she's in the room with, and that, of course, is the necklace that Damon gave her. You know, her mind's on her uncle, and her uncle's on her mind. Coming back to the episode when I was rewatching, it felt like almost like she can sense him coming. In the same way that, like, at the end of episode two, you had Damon and the crab feeder like staring each other down in mirrored shots, like they could sense each other. It feels like at some level, Rhaenyra knows he's coming back to disrupt this shit show that she's going through here, because Damon is as the episode will go on to demonstrate at length, is actually sexy. Unlike the hilariously long line of suitors she has to deal with here at Storm's End, the camera just slowly panning over them until we find the one who's talking all the way at the end. And he's one of the Dondarians, and he's he's rambling on about, you know, what a smoke show her great-grandmother was. When uh, when Rhaenyra asked if, if he found Alysanne beautiful, it reminded me how in The Lord of the Rings people always compare Arwen to Luthien. Like, oh, man, your ancestor, she sure was hot. At least the elves live forever, though. Like, what does Rhaenyra care that this asshole once got a half-chub at the side of Silver Wing <laughs> overhead? And he's, he's talking... The, the whole conversation is innuendo. He's talking about his castle's dry moat. Yeah, yeah, I'll bet it is. Rhaenyra's dried up just hearing about it. Same with his castle, lesser in size. Oh, but it can keep her safe. The subtitles identify this chucklefuck talking as Beric Dondarrion. Okay, sure. Even if that is his name, he's never going to hold a candle to his cosmically badass descendant, who we will be getting to soon in the main cast. They never really delve too deeply into Beric's sex life. I don't know if it still works with the resurrections, but I've always found that Scarecrow a sexy dude. That might just be me. <laughs> oh, no, he's sexy in his own way, though. I'm going to forward a crackpot that it's all the same barracks. It's like the all barrack uh, theory. Uh, uh, uh. Um, and he just had the Lord of Light uh, resurrecting him for the last 200 years. I don't know who was in his employ prior to Thoros Amir, but I'm sure he's got some red priest around there. Um, the, the Stormlands usually do, I guess. Uh, but the houses that we get a little bit of focus on specifically in this segment are the Blackwoods and the Brackens, which any Song of Ice and Fire fan will recognize as a long feuding house or a long, long standing feud in the Riverlands between two of the bigger houses there. Um, we have the kid, I believe identified as Sam, Samuel Blackwood, who is a kid, you know, following up the old man Dondarrion. Here we got, uh, a young kid who's barely hit puberty, uh, saying why he will be the one to protect Rhaenyra, and she scoffs at that a little bit, and then the peanut gallery, um, which, uh, sorry to go deep Simpsons here, but the peanut gallery struck me as like the bachelor auction where they had that in Springfield, and Mo just walks right to the front of the line yes. and then just walks off into the rejects pile. Why we have to stain her? This is so humiliating. <laughs> um, so it looked like a bunch of the rejects just sitting there waiting to dunk on the other ones, and that's where the Bracken was, um, and eventually his barbs got a little too... Too sharp for the kid, and the kid drew his steel, and then the Bracken drew his steel, and maybe surprisingly, the kid wins, which I really love, because A, it's the Blackwood and Bracken feud being renewed for another probably generation, um, and then also, we see the kid after doing this is also about to vomit, like this is probably the first time he's killed someone, um, so we see that the violence has an effect on all the people who are um, 
doing it. And there might be future violence that is set at Storm's End too, which I think is kind of tying into this scene as well. Yeah, I thought this was a really great example of how to flesh out world building in a way that A, is fun to watch, and B, reveals more than just, oh, look at those guys, they exist. Like, this really sets up how the Brack and Blackwood feud is this, this circular futility. It's just, you know, status built on brute force. And as you say, it's just it's just fuel for the next generation's fight. The Targs themselves are soon going to turn on each other in this exact same way. It definitely sets up their little fight. And it starts young. Like, that Blackwood kid has no more to do with his ancestors hating each other than Rhaenyra has to do with Alisand visiting Blackhaven that Lord Dondarrion was talking about. But they're all tied to it. And yeah, that poor fucking kid, the way he looks when it's done, he's... He was, you know, too young for Rhaenyra's hand, but also too young to kill a man, even if he's good at it. It's a, it's a sorrowful thing, especially since what they're ostensibly fighting about is, is Rhaenyra's hand and looking good in front of her, but she's literally walking away as they do it. Yeah, she's, uh, she takes a quick look back to see the Bracken guts get spilled on the floor, but that's basically it. She had already decided enough of this. I'm going to cut my whole entire progress two months short. I'm just done with this. I have no interest. As soon as uh, swords were drawn, she's like, okay, these are just dudes waving their dicks at each other, which that's all it really truly is. Um, and then she didn't just really like any of the dicks that were presented to her. So <laughs> back home she goes. I don't like that one. I don't like that one. That one looks weird. Exactly. And no, that's a great point that it's, I'm not even blaming Rhaenyra when I say she was walking away from it. That's what's so, I think, illustrative about moments like this is there, even though what's happening is objectively ridiculous and awful, there is not one individual who is entirely to blame for what's happening. And you kind of have to think about the social mores they're all working within and what would lead them to act this way. And yeah, it's, it's absolutely critical that Rhaenyra decides, fuck this, I'm going home. Cutting off the uh, two months short, her little uh, try to marry me to her around Westeros, her little, uh, you know, season of The Bachelorette around Westeros. She cuts it short because they say her next stop is going to be Bitterbridge, which is in the Reach, farther away from King's Landing. So if she had gone on to Bitterbridge, as was the plan, she would have missed Damon's return. And then basically nothing in the rest of the episode would have happened, at least not in the same way. So that's a, that's a, a little choice that ends up having ripple effects. Yeah, speaking of uh, Damon's return, he clearly saw Top Gun Maverick this summer because he Uh, buzzed uh, the tower uh, as he comes flying in and uh, literally uh, knocking Rhaenyra off her feet on her own ship. Now I'm wondering who Tom Cruise would play in House of the Dragon. I'll be bringing him up later in the episode, but now I'm wondering. I guess no, no real wrong answers there. Oh, I'll take a few minutes and think about that one. When we get to Tom Cruise, I'll try to have an answer. Excellent, excellent. The clock is ticking. But yeah, I love that that Damon's return. The first thing he does is literally rock the boat. That's what Damon's all about. You know, and it's, again, it's sexy. It's the, the motion of the ocean, as they say. That's Damon. He's undeniably sexy, and he's equally undeniably dangerous. That's the Damon conundrum in a nutshell. If he was only one of those two things, he'd be a lot easier to deal with. But unfortunately, he's both. Yeah, he's really the total package there, and it's a pain in everyone's so ass, mm-hmm. but um, it's also someone everyone wants to come see. Um, the minute he appears over the skies of King's Landing, we see the entirety of uh, Viserys' court basically get ready um, to go into the throne room and see what the hell is going to happen when these brothers uh, reunite. 
Um, and we get a little bit of Rhaenyra going Arya underfoot mode. Um, she just kind of walks in, mixed in with the crowd. She ducks and weaves between various people. We see her in the background. Um, there's this great shot of her walking parallel to Damon, where you can just see her blonde hair in the background, uh, just like kind of following him in parallel. You can put all sorts of metaphorical reading on that, but it's just really cool to see her. And it's also telling that here is the princess and heir to the Iron Throne, and she's able to just duck and weave between these highborns as if she's not even there, which sets up a little bit of her later venture down into the streets of Silk. Hell yeah, I, I love that shot. I was watching it with Chloe and with Eliana from Girls Gone Canon, and they could all tell you, like, while that shot was happening, I just sat up and stared straight at the screen because it was just it was just perfectly perfectly done like no one else is moving in the shot like they're all statues and Damon and Rhaenyra are their only real people chasing each other towards the throne and like that's their whole relationship right there you can do you can do so much to summarize relationships visually it's the same thing with uh, Damon's rampage last week this can be more effective without dialogue yeah um and one of the bits i really liked is harold westerling drawing his sword and like leaving its point pointed at damon and damon just keeps kind of walking into it like are you are you going to move this are you you're kind of in my way your sword point is in my way um and he's not at all like plussed about it he's like yeah whatever um and then he's uh he has uh, the crab feeder's hammer in his hand and he's doing that little like tennis racket twirl he was doing last time with it um and everyone thinks it's going to be some tense moment especially with damon entering all crowned um but then he's says you know add it to the add it to the chair and he throws the hammer down and all of a sudden goes into gracious Damon mode um and bows and bends the knee and offers up his crown to uh the king well it's it's so funny that you know the the idea of being cool is really like one of the oldest ideas we have like the idea of being casually effortless like being awesome without looking like you're having to work that hard like that's such an ancient idea that we love and damon really embodies it here in the same way that a, a character like oberon does in the main series where he, it seems like this is just how i am i don't even have to try but with damon there's the extra sting of knowing that he is in fact trying very <laughs> very hard yes that's that's what I, th I think matt smith is really bringing that to the fore and what makes him for me more compelling on the screen actually so far than he was on the page and yeah, I love the the bit with Westerling again. It's communicating character through action instead of dialogue. That he's he's challenging Westerling, but also revealing the emptiness of the threat. Like you're not really gonna stab me. I think we both know that. So go ahead, poke me. And I I love yeah I love the bit where he talks about having left the stepstones behind, like with no one in charge, not even Corliss. And because it, it really gets across that that wasn't about the stepstones for Damon. It also obviously wasn't about the men he was fighting with because he stomped one with his dinosaur. But it's just like, yeah, oh, the, the islands? Yeah, sure, the crabs and the corpses have them. Who cares? He did it to demonstrate that he could on his own with no help from Big Bro. Yeah, no, I like how he just casually is like, oh, yeah, we left 2,000 corpses on the islands just sitting there to watch and serve as warning. They it's got like, this. Yeah, just doing some light war crimes here. Uh, but it is really great. And that is really what the Stepstones are to Damon. They are something to be used and then discarded right away, just like the crab feeder's hammer, just like the dragon egg he stole. Um, the minute something isn't of use for him, as soon as it's he's got used it to get, get the attention of his brother, um, then, you know, mission accomplished with that. And then he can move on to the next thing that he'll do to get his brother's goat which will be more someone than something in this episode. Yeah, I like this scene between Damon and Viserys, that this is really the last little moment of intimacy for them. Because I think the, the actors do a good job of selling grown men who were clearly extremely close when they were younger. 
like clearly Damon and Viserys loved each other deeply when they were young men and they they just have lived their lives in a way that doesn't just let them do it anymore but both of them are sad about that and you have this moment where they hug and that's that's it both of them later in the episode they pursue intimacy through sex Damon uh, with Rhaenyra and Viserys with Alicent but neither get it neither get what they're looking for this is really what both of them want most they were at peace right here and then never again yeah, their similarities. I mean, they talk about like when they're laughing later in the courtyard having drinks or even how they both used to go through all the brothels when they were young kids. There's obviously they're not two different people. I mean, they manifest themselves in two different ways, but they have a lot in common. They have a lot of shared experiences and love for each other. Um, and that really comes across in this uh, scene. And even in the later one, I think when uh, he's being threatened, I don't think Damon actually fears for his life or anything in the presence of his brother. Uh, before moving on to the next scene, uh, one last thing I wanted to add is um, in all the scenes we get with Viserys and the Iron Throne in this episode, he never once actually sits on it, uh, which, you know, again, metaphors. There's so many metaphors for what's going on with his reign, but it also just lines up with what we know from Fire and Blood, where he did not sit the throne after it took his two fingers. Um, and they're not they're not calling it out again. Like you said, they're letting the visuals tell the story. There's not someone saying, why isn't Viserys sitting on the chair or anything like that in the background? Um, it is all relying on the audience to perceive the visual cues being given to them. So the next scene finds us in a little luncheon out in the Godswood, um, basically like Damon's back. Let's all have lunch with Damon, you know, um, bottomless mimosas. It's a brunch party. I think uh, Rhaenyra is eating the lemons, lemon tops off the lemon cakes, which uh, Chloe, I believe, observed, which is a really nice touch. Um, but Damon does look kind of out of place here, trying to just enjoy the party and the day-to-day -day life of the court. Um, I think of how Jamie described Theon at Winterfell. He looks like a shark on a mountaintop. And that's kind of what Damon looks like with his like short hair and proper threads and trying to make proper dialogue and fit in with Alicent and Rhaenyra. He's just, he's, he's trying. He's really, really trying. Um, but it's just, it's not his natural setting. And I think that kind of shows. Yeah, some dragons he can't put a saddle on. I think he's having difficulty adjusting. And I, I, the, I really love in the scene, like I was thinking about it as like a family cookout, like a family reunion or something. And it's just like the, the extremely realistic drunk dad energy coming off Viserys where I'm waiting for, I'm waiting for him to have like the grill apron on. Like he's, he's so happy to have his brother back that he, he kind of insults Alicent. And I don't think he even realizes it as he's doing it. Like when Alicent's like, we should show him the tapestries because that's something that's changed. She's like trying to be the hostess. And Viserys is like, tapestries, fuck out of here. He doesn't want to look at the tapestries. Like, I don't think he realizes that he's being cruel there. Like, he's just so thrilled that it's Damon, the big personality, the one who I always loved being around. He's here. And I don't know, man. Like, some of our friends, including uh, Mary from Learned Hands, are pointing out online, some of those tapestries do have orgies on them. So, Damon, eh, Damon might like them. Yeah, Damon will be like, oh, that was me. Like, five years ago, someone clearly put that to tapestry form or mural form or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't, I think Viserys is very oblivious to a lot of what's going on with Alicent, even though I think like with Rhaenyra, he does truly value her. Like, I think we see that in several scenes where they have some emotional talks. Um, he goes to her for counsel. He takes her advice. The same with Rhaenyra, but at the same time, he can be both good to them and bad to them. That's part of the inherent relationship with them. And it's not really one or the other. And it's the fact that... <laughs> It'd almost be easier if he was just a bad parent or a bad husband all around. It's it's like how Bart and Lisa got frustrated with Homer's half-ass parenting. It's just, 
we prefer when you didn't even try. It's just easier for everyone involved. Um, cause then it leads to awkward situations like this. Cause you know, he's trying to be bros with his brother. Um, and he doesn't even realize that he's like really hurting Allison's feeling, but Rhaenyra kind of picks up on it. It's like, Oh, I'd be interested. And you can kind of see that they, they seem to be on better terms this episode than, uh, they were going into the last episode. I think things have kind of settled down a little bit between the two of the women. You make a great point there. And I think about like that Otto Hightower in that regard, because I think it would be easy to say that Otto is pretending to have loved his late wife, but I think the truth is he did. And that guy with love in his heart can coexist with the guy who coldly manipulates his daughter. And that's, uh, I think it's an unfortunate reality of the human condition is you can, in fact, the same person can do those things. And that happens all the time. And if, you know, it would it would be easier if they were all obviously unfeeling monsters like, you know, Ramsey or Gregor, you know, Gregor, like Gregor Clegane, he's like, he's, he's barely recognizable as a human being. Like he's, you know, he's like a, a giant or something out of a fairy tale. But there are a lot more of them, I think, like Viserys, who are, are recognizable, relatable, even lovable. And then they can turn around and do things that make your eyebrows fly off your head. And those are, you know, those are their two sides of the same coin that the gods do flip. Kind of uh, aside from this whole party, Alicent and Rhaenyra have a moment. I do want to call out that Alicent is just all in red and black with this double dragon design dress, um, just really embracing the colors of House Targaryen, which is interesting. But I think it is symbolic that right now the House of the Dragon, such as it is, is mostly one. Um, they are united as of right now. and I For think a her- whole new generation, as Viserys says, <laughs> all is well. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll see about that, Viserys. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I do like that they're using, it's, it's not unobvious, but I do like how it'll be something we can track. And especially when she starts do- donning the green that we anticipate to start seeing in the next couple episodes, it will stand out because she's been wearing red the last couple episodes, um, which is kind of interesting. But I think the actual key part about the relationship with Alison and Rhaenyra is we're seeing how the same systems of patriarchy are affecting both young women, but in different ways. Alicent, on one hand, feels isolated and alone. Her friends at court are women at least twice or thrice her age, an army of handmaidens, and Viserys and Otto. So she's desperately in search of a connection like she had with Rhaenyra when they were younger, but she's kind of kind of, she is coming up empty in that regards right now. And I like that they're having this whole conversation on the outdoor couch the Targaryens keep in the godswood, specifically for sulking. I think the Starks really need one of those. Jon could have uh, could have used that a bunch when he was growing up. Again, the, the price you pay for power is this total loss of intimacy, like with Viserys and Daemon, because no one has an incentive to treat you like an individual with feelings. Like, there's no, there's no political gain in doing that. So no one does it. It's all performance. And that's how you get someone like Otto Hightower, who, as I was saying, he uses, he takes his feelings and then he uses them as ammunition in the Game of Thrones. And he seems, one of the things I like about Otto in the show is he seems honestly baffled when other people don't do that. Like when Viserys just has feelings and says them out loud and like you see Otto's forehead crease like your grace. Why would, that doesn't advance your position. <laughs> Why are you even talking about that? Yeah, I like that Otto takes all his personal hangups and traumas and weaponizes them to climb the ladder, essentially, uh, which is fun. And he's kind of shocked that no one else does that. It's like, well, if shit sucks, I'm going to make, you know, lemonade out of the lemons I've given. So um, there is, I wouldn't call it admirable, but there is something like tenacious to that, that, you know, Otto is kind of scrappy in his own way. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of really like that uh, characterization. 
Uh, Rhaenyra, on the other hand, compared to Alicent, says she desires solitude. She actually says this later to uh, Damon specifically, but whereas Alicent is feeling alone, Rhaenyra just kind of wants to be left alone. She wants to, you know, ride dragons and eat cake, like she says in the first episode, or uh, watch Mummer's farces and walk down the walk through the pleasure houses on the streets of silk. Um, but everywhere she goes, she's being hounded by the question of the secession, but her betrothal um, being, you know, hectored by her father about it. So um, we find the same pressures that are applied to these women and how they've manifested differently. And obviously, Allison's already been married and had kids, but how it's manifesting and how it's affecting these two women, I think is very much the point of this. As she says, yeah, I'll just go off and look at the tapestries by myself. Just leave me the hell alone. What could be more relatable than that? And this is, yeah, this is where she reminded me of the characters in the main series people often compare her to, uh, namely Cersei and Stannis. Because both of them are caught in this contradiction of desperately wanting to be in charge, but also not wanting to ever interact with people, which is kind of a problem because interacting with people is basically the entire job. Like I think of Cersei telling in Feast for Crows, telling off her entire council and then not understanding why an awkward silence follows that. Or the terrible and hilarious bit in Storm of Swords when Davos sticks around after a council meeting on Dragonstone and Stannis looks up at him and goes, why are you still here? Which I get the sense for him that's like an honest question. Like, I have reached my limit of social tolerance for the day. <laughs> Shoo. Be gone. Off, or like yeah, like he says in Fraser, off you go. <laughs> Rhaenyra is much more sympathetic here than I think either of those characters, Cersei or Stannis, because she's not pissed off at anyone in particular. Like, she's not taking it out on anybody. It's, it's more of the system that is reducing her to her last name and also the superpowers in her blood. I think at this point it's really easy to imagine yourself as her rather than as someone in her way. That is going to change later on in her story when her targets become more specific and more sympathetic themselves, which I think, I think they're setting themselves up for that turn well, as Rhaenyra's justifiable and relatable angst about the system becomes more paranoia and rage against specific people who aren't really to blame. No, I think so. And I think this episode broadly is a nice kind of like starting point for that as we start seeing her not necessarily do bad things, just kind of maybe make some mistakes or if you could take it back, maybe she would have done something else. But um, I just really like the chemistry that Rainier and Allison have here, or rather the actors playing them, um, because this does feel like a very good moment for the two characters. Um, Rainier, you know, hold, reaches out and holds on to Allison's arm for a little bit. There does seem to be a bridge here that's been built since the last episode. Um, and it's this kind of needs to be here because uh, later on when Allison comes to Rhaenyra with the allegations against her, um, I don't think she would have come straight to Rhaenyra if they didn't kind of mend those bridges. Um, she would have either kept it to herself or saved it for the court or the council or something like that. I love what you were saying earlier about how their gender roles are affecting them, but in different ways. And it's that comes out in this conversation where they, they kind of realize, oh, we're both longing for what the other one has. In a way, like Rhaenyra, I don't think, wants to be pregnant with kids, but she wants to be settled and left alone. And Alicent wants a little more liberation in her life. And it's neither of them are happy, but what they have in common is being sad. Hooray! Again, <laughs> gender and sadness, the two themes of House of the Dragon, always coming up. 
so the next scene, we got Damon and Rhaenyra who are having a conversation in the gods room. This seems to be the after party. I guess they got mm-hmm. the cleanup crew job. Um, but which means they also get to pick at the leftovers. So it's always, uh, it's a double edged, double edged sword, uh, getting the cleanup crew at these parties. But, um, <laughs> I just want to once again voice my complaint that the font size on the HBO Max for the Valyrian subtitles are really small. Um, I don't mean like the close captioning that I put on, but just, just the subtitling that HBO has built in for the Valyrian stuff, I feel could be a little bigger. Um, but I also have, <laughs> not great eyes so uh same same we're, we're, we're hans mole man with the thick glasses <laughs> yes we can definitely like uh set our shirts on fire if we're in the sun too long but uh anyways one thing that i just i don't know what this triggers in my brain but they're speaking valyrian in the god's woods and it's just it feels like ice and fire to me it feels like you know the weirwood stands in for the ice part the valerian language is the language of fire in some ways um and just the way that that's all kind of being wrapped up into one singular setting and moment and scene it feels very deliberate especially since this episode is once again going to hit us with the song of ice and fire uh, near the end of it i i love that slow fade in to damon under the weirwood and he's he's just like drained again that like kind of uh, introvert part of him where he's just drained of energy after having to play nice with all these people but he's also looking up at the leaves it feels kind of spiritual you know i wonder if his his great grandson blood raven might be checking in who know who's to say but i totally agree especially now after all the the backstory they're bringing up in the show always pay attention to when northern related stuff comes into contact with targaryen valyrian related stuff because it it tends to be pretty important and there's yeah there's really strong chemistry between uh, not I think not just the characters of Rhaenyra and Damon, but I think between the actors, I think it, there's really strong chemistry, and it's it's interesting because it's different from the chemistry we were just talking about between Rhaenyra and Alicent. Like with Alicent, Rhaenyra is is thinking about who she is and the position she's in, and forging you know camaraderie with her on that basis. With Damon, there's this kind of fantasy element where she's thinking about who she could be. And when she says that he's not at home here in the Red Keep, I think she's really talking about herself. And Damon tries to reassure her, saying, yeah, I understand you're, you're being betrothed at length. But look, marriage is political, and the rest is up to you. The rest is personal, which of course sets up their dynamic in later scenes in the episode. Rhaenyra is right that the rules are different for girls. Viserys makes that explicit to her. And as she said, marriage was a, a death sentence for her mother. It wasn't just like an annoyance and aggravation like it seems to be for Damon. It was the end of her mother's life. I do think Damon makes an important point in response to that. Like, yeah, that was fucked up, and this is an irredeemably fucked up world. And you have the absolute right to be angry about that, but you you shouldn't prov- let it prevent you, the individual, from trying to be happy. You have to learn to seize what happiness you can. And you have to try to not be jealous or possessive about it, which is the part where Damon kind of falls short. Like, I, I agree with his, you know, carpe diem attitude, but uh, it's it's what happens after he seizes the day. That's when the problems come in. And she's not living in fear. She's she just or she doesn't desire to be free of fear. She just desires solitude, like we kind of mm-hmm. mentioned earlier. Um, but Damon has the right of it. Like she needs to get out a little bit. And like part of it, like she feels confined by what she has to do. But she also, I feel like, needs to not be afraid to step outside of that. Much like Damon has. Damon. <laughs> No line has been drawn for Damon that he hasn't stepped over, and that's kind of what he's tempting her with, both kind of verbally here and then very, very directly later with the with their little tryst, not tryst, but a little journey through the Street of Silk. 
so uh, from here, we zoom into the small council scene, which is, um, first of all, notable that Rhaenyra is seated at the table. She is no longer a cupbearer. She's no longer off to the sides or in the margins. She is there seated at the table. So the big piece of news here appears to be that the Sea Lord of Bravos is about to marry his son to Lena Valerian, the daughter of the Sea Snake, which would effectively tie the most important people of Bravos to House Valerian. And from there, they could really make some trouble for the Targaryens if they wish to. Uh, yeah, so that's like could potentially be a very big political shift. And it's also we haven't really seen in Game of Thrones an allyship really between the Free Cities and Westeros. There's a little bit of the Iron Bank, but they're mostly there to, you know, move some plot stuff. Um, but the actual ramifications of a Bravosi-Valerian uh, alliance would mean the Narrow Sea would be owned by that one family and what effect that could have on both Essos and Westeros. It's really a global proposition that's happening there. That's a great point. And isn't it interesting how different that is from how Damon thinks about the Narrow Sea? It's just like, yeah, I took it. I left it. Whatever. Corliss is the one actually thinking about what holding it would look like for him economically. And it really, yeah, it really hammers home the idea that one of the ways you play the Game of Thrones is you go outside your country, you go outside your polity, and you you prove yourself there. You make gains there. You get involved with Essos, which is something, as you say, we do see a little bit of in the, in the main series, but that's not where George's focus is. And Westeros is just kind of more inward turning, I think, after the Targaryens are out of power. I think we see it much more so in this area. That That's a very important part about what happens to Rhaenyra and Daemon's kids. So uh, Corlys, worth noting, doesn't actually appear in this episode. We don't check in with the Valerians, but he's still a major player off screen. Obviously, we end with the revelation that we're going ahead with Rhaenyra's wedding to his son, Laenor. So the Valerians are, you know, essentially set up to replace the Hightowers as as the the second family of King's Landing here. And that gets us into our little nighttime set piece that starts with uh, Rhaenyra returning to her chambers. And R Damon has apparently left a secret sack of stuff to do secret stuff with. There's a secret map, a secret costume, a secret uh, beanie for Rhaenyra to wear. Um, and it's it's really kind of cute. Um, the score is really excellent here. A, a new original piece from Ramin Jawadi. Um, Rhaenyra is pointed to a wall, her panel, a panel that she can push, and she almost falls through as it reveals a secret passage. Uh, me and uh, Joe Magician were on a live stream yesterday, and we both said if we ever lived in a castle, we're literally touching every wall the minute we move <laughs> in because it's a castle. It's got to have secret passages. Um, but one thing I do appreciate about the secret passage here is that it has a handrail, a steel handrail nonetheless. So I like that this is like an OSHA certified safe red key. <laughs> um, so Rhaenyra has no chance of stumbling. There's this uh, great sequence of her like working her way through the back passages and tunnels, uh, going past the... Uh, dragon skull of Beleriand with the candles all lit. Um, we get this really great shot of rats eating in the dragon's teeth, yeah. which, good lord, what could that possibly mean? <laughs> um, the, scav the scavenger rodents and the dead dragons, and who's feasting on who here? Uh, that's, you know, what we're, what's to come with the rest of the dance, but... Best highly symbolic rat since the departed, basically, right <laughs> oh, there. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> For all that this is, I found it just very relatable. This is like sneaking out after curfew and then meeting up with like your cool uncle or older brother who's going to buy you booze even though you're still underage. Like this is easily the most relatable thing a Targaryen has ever done that I've seen visually depicted <laughs> on HBO. And it specifically comes from with getting out from the Red Keep and out from the Iron Throne. And yeah, I, we had a sense from the, the, the teaser that this was coming. 
Obviously, it interacts with canon in a wild way because we're given several different versions of what happens with Rhaenyra and Fire and Blood, and this is this is show canon. And I, I really can't, honestly, I can't imagine this being executed better. I love that there's basically no setup for it. Like we don't see one of the maids doing something shady or Damon slipping out of the hallway. It's just we're we're just thrown into it, and we're surprised as Rhaenyra is. And again, it's all communicated visually. You got that look on her face as she goes from confused to excited. She's figuring out the map. She's slipping out the passage. Then you got Damon overlooking the city like a gargoyle with that priestly garb on, all all cloaked and hooded, like he's leading her to a religious ritual. And in a way, I guess he is. Yeah, it also uh, visually reminded me a little bit of uh, Sansa's flight from the royal wedding. Good call. Um, as uh, she's running down those staircases following yes. Ser Dantos. Um, very, very visually similar. A lot of the same kind of look backs over the shoulder that Sophie Turner gave. We see uh, Millie Alcock giving here. So I thought that was great. But uh, once we get into the actual Street of Silk, it's not Sansa mode. It's Arya mode once again. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- one of the like passerbys bumps into Rhaenyra, who's all disguised, and calls her a boy. And she is legitimately thrilled that she was called a boy. He's like, she's like up to Damon. He called me a boy and has the biggest smile on her face. I loved every second of that. Me too. And I love I love how thrilled she is despite what the guy says. The guy says, fuck off, boy. Like he's just trying to get her out of the way. But she doesn't hear, even hear those first two words. It's just it's just the boy. And that's great. This is the this is the you know, I was talking earlier about the kind of what, what what kills your soul in politics is that everything is so performative and fake and nothing is genuine. But, you know, the the positive flip side of that is if everything is fake, then you can become something, someone else entirely. And I think it's just, it's it's so ironic that this is where Rhaenyra is seen as a boy. This is where she's seen as, you know, someone who could easily claim the throne, but only here in disguise, you know, in the, in the underbelly of King's Landing about as far from the top as you can get. Only here can she realize that dream. And it's like, you know, the great classic descending into the underworld scene as the music swells and everyone's fucking and drinking and laughing and you have those intercut with those those bursts of fire from a stone dragon's mouth and as many people have pointed out you know Rhaenyra passes by the 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 seer the the prophecy lady on the street who says oh do you want to know about your death and then we cut to the dragon shooting fire at its mouth very strong foreshadowing there um but also that that editing the constant burst of the fire just expresses emotions coming to the fore that that fire in your blood so to speak which is everything that's being denied to people inside the red keep same thing with that shot of the the tightrope tightrope walker going over the crowd. That's that's politics in a nutshell. That's the Game of Thrones. You're just you're barely holding yourself up above everybody else, leaning this way and then that, and they're just waiting for you to fall. Yeah, no, it's great. It's literally like Bourbon Street or Mardi Gras or that's Carnival. What I was Absolutely, um, it is just a great side to see the cultural underbelly of King's Landing and to do it pretty effectively to get. A wide view of it because we see like some of the plays we get to see some of the food uh some of the taverns and then of course the pleasure houses so like all the you know sins and vices that you could possibly imagine they're all here to gorge on as you wish um i think the one that really kind of stood out early to me was the mummers farce they go see we get to see a play um a little bit of shades of what aria saw in bravos from the main series um but this i love using these plays as a way to reflect 
the common perception of what's happening because almost with both of these shows and both of these stories we're mostly in the eyes of the highborns so when we have this we can see like oh this is what the common people are really thinking and seeing what they think about Damon, about Rhaenyra about Aegon and I think Damon, it's not an accident that they're here like when I was first watching this episode I honestly thought the whole point of this might be Damon bringing her to this like showing her this is what people are saying about you this is what you have to prepare yourself and if you just you know think everything just is beneath you and you just want to keep running off and ride your dragon then you are going to be usurped whether you like it or not um so i very much felt like this was going to be the point not knowing that we still had another 20 minutes or so of stuff down in this part of the city but i think it was very effective i loved rhaenyra's reaction to the stuff about her in the play when she was just looking around going lies slander boo and yeah i love i love damon's attitude here which is, like I was saying earlier, trying really, really hard to act like he's not trying and to care so hard about acting like he doesn't care. And it reminds me of that that little wonderfully circular conversation invented for the show in Game of Thrones uh, between Tywin and Jamie, our introduction to Tywin on the show, where, I'm just going to paraphrase, where Tywin says to Jamie, you care too much about what other people think of you. And Jamie says, I don't care what they think of me. And Tywin says, yeah, that's what you want them to think. And that's exactly what Damon is, is is kind of trying to express here, that it it does matter what people think of you, even if your goal, as as it is with him, is to have this fuck you swaggering reputation. That's still something that requires other people to believe in it. And that, that still involves their consent, even if it's only as a literal audience. Yeah, no, that's exactly what Viserys tells Rhaenyra later when they're talking about the allegations against her and what she might have done with Damon in the Street of Silk. Viserys doesn't even care. He's just like, it's the perception that matters. Um, and we're getting a little bit of that. I like how we're hitting a lot of the same thematic beats with Rhaenyra, first with Damon and then with Viserys or the other way around. Um, it's really driving home the point. And I really like how they're playing that out. Agreed. Yeah, that's yeah. what Damon is, is showing Rhaenyra in this part of the city. Viserys shows her in the more rarefied halls of power, but similar lesson. And I love that beat in the Mummer's Farce where he... The, Damon turns to look at Rhaenyra and the camera just holds way longer than I was expecting it to. Like I kept expecting it to cut and then it didn't. It's just this long lingering look. It's not a glance. It's a full on stare. And at first it's like he's trying to imagine what she's thinking. And then it's like you can see him just kind of give up trying and he's just he's just looking at her. And that's it's 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 a nice beat. It kind of, it's the political and personal all wrapped up in one. First, he's just trying to see what she's making of this whole situation, this reality being presented to her. But then he gets lost like, oh, yeah, yeah, she is. She is kind of cute and um, all that stuff. And that's really setting up what comes next, uh, which is um, they go. Uh, Rhaenyra, I think, uh, takes a free sample. It might not have been so free. <laughs> um, and then <clears throat> Damon kind of plays along with her. He's like, street rat, you've got to pay for your stuff. And she runs off. And then he's like, oh, I'll go chase her down. And then who does she bump into but Sir Harwin Strong, um, which is interesting considering what we read in fire and blood because he is kind of involved in all the weird rumors surrounding damon and Kristen cole and rainera but here it's just a very casual bump into the street and then go your separate ways um and i think not to get too far into the books it's one of those things where it's like is this the thing that was described in the book and it was just blown way out of proportion? Or is this just a precursor, something that was not written about and that we still have yet to see what will happen with Harwin Strong? So um, very clever, very tricksy for us book reader folk. It reminds me of Aladdin when she, you know, she runs off with what she's stolen and Damon runs after her. 
which makes you just want to sing again. Riff raff, street rat, <laughs> I'm not like that. That's what I sing whenever one of my cats is sulky about getting in trouble for something. That's what they're singing in their little heads. Riff raff, street rat, I'm not like that. But yeah, the, the Harwin Strong bit, it is, you can tell they, I think they did a great job with this episode, but in terms of streamlining it and focusing it on the characters of Rhaenyra, Damon, and Kristen, Harwin Strong is kind of the odd one out. And so shoving him into the scene, is, it is very much uh, one of those moments where it's like, audience at home, hey, remember him? Look at him, remember this face? It is very blatant, but I'm willing to forgive that because I think you you really do have to just do that with the Strongs because they're not central to the drama that's going on in these episodes, but they the audience has to know who they are for later events to work at all. So you can see them doing it with uh, with Laris and with their dad as well in earlier episodes. So this is like, remember him, he will be important, we promise. What they really do here that really brings home the point is while we're getting all this Rhaenyra frolicking in the uh, streets of Silk, um, we're cutting back and forth with Alicent and her knight in the Red Keep. And there she is not having a great time. Um, First, she's, you know, just kind of surrounded by her handmaids and dealing with her crying child. Um, A crying child we can hear across the Red Keep when Rhaenyra's returning to her room before her little escapade. You can still hear the baby crying off in the distance. So um, that's not going to be pleasant to sleep to. Um, But then she goes to bed. Um, She seems just kind of like whatever with life at this point. And then late, late into the night, um, someone comes in, a handmaiden, and says, the king requests you. Um, Basically, he wants a booty call. I don't know if you can get a booty call from your wife, but he gets a booty call from his wife. And she's like, it's fucking late, man. Do I really got to do this? And we cut to... uh, you know, Alicent having sex with her husband. And while Rhaenyra's like trying all these new experiences and looking around, spinning around, sensory overload, big smile on her face, we have Alicent who is just like dead faced, a corpse, like sitting there as Viserys fucks her with his, you know, weeping sores on him. Uh, she's basically a starfish. She's pinned down. She can't even go anywhere, which again, visually, um, I think of Jamie and how he says he dissociates and goes away inside. That's kind of the face that Allison has here. Um, it just all the like pleasure and like excitement that Rainier is experiencing. Allison is on the opposite end of all that. Yeah, I love the cross-cutting here. It's the equivalent of what they did in the first episode when they were cutting between the tourney and MSC section. It's that it's the magic of editing. Bring it, you push two shots together, and they mean more than either would have on their own. And they have the, it's the same purpose as the cross-cutting in that first episode. It's, it's showing flip sides of the same coin. You have sex as wild freedom, and you have sex as a stifling prison. It's the inside versus the outside. It's, it's the palace versus the mean streets. And it reminds me, in terms of the main series, it reminds me of how Daenerys thinks about sex with Hisdar Zolorak versus Daryo Naharis. That Hisdar is, it's purely a political marriage, and she's not into it at all, and he just like slobbers and says, I hope we've made a son tonight. And Dario actually gets her engine revving, but she can't really rely on him for the long term. He's not a sensible choice politically. He wants to just murder everybody all the time. That's the, I think that's the flip side we're seeing here, but... Now, with one character, instead, we're seeing two characters experience the, those different sides. Yeah. Uh, speaking of possibly having a son, uh, in my mind, I've come up with that this might be where Aemond One-Eye is conceived. Um, just for no other reason, because he's a little shit, and this is about the most passionless <laughs> sex that's ever been had in the history of having sex. Uh, so when we actually make it into the inner bowels of the pleasure house that they're in, um, this is where, you know, 
all that kind of sexual energy starts turning inwards between Damon and Rhaenyra. Um, they start directing it at each other. We get these camera shots that kind of swirl around them as they slowly start to fondle each other. It looks like Rhaenyra tries to undo his britches. Uh, he starts feeling her chest. Uh, and it looks like they're about to go all the way, which is what HBO, I'm sure, wanted in this moment. But at the very last second, Damon appears to stop short, which... Showrunners say it's a combination of him not being able to perform in the moment, um, though I think that's part of a bigger picture. I think it's a whole mess of stuff, a combination of feelings he has towards his brother, towards his niece. Um, and it's just, I think he had a moment of clarity, possibly. I don't know how much alcohol he's had based on what we see later, but I think he might have been like, I really shouldn't do this. Um, and possibly I've done enough because, again, a lot of what he does is just to get his brother's attention or, you know, get his goat. Um, and he's definitely done that with what little or what he's already done so far. Um, and I like that Rhaenyra is pressing forward a bit, even as uh, Damon is pulling back. Like she she's a little hot D and bothered. She is like ready to go, uh, you know, and like it's hard to, you know, get yourself worked up in that kind of way. And this end it and not have some kind of outlet for that your body almost demands it regardless of what you may mentally want in the moment it's that great build up and then deflation of sexual energy and that arc reminds me very specifically of eyes wide shut you all had to know this was coming i'm gonna i'm gonna somehow make this about my favorite movie and eyes wide shut i love it i recommend it to a lot of people i've turned on a lot of people i've turned a lot of people onto it so to speak and the reaction I always get back when people actually watch it is actually is just kind of confusion that it's like it's it's not what people expect because it, it gets it, it, and this happened when it came out too. It gets pigeonholed as the orgy movie, as the sexiest, most scandalous movie ever made. And people aren't expecting a dark comedy about Tom Cruise failing to get laid, which is what it is. And it's like the orgy is only the centerpiece and the, the movie as a whole is is not really sexy or at least it's not it's not sexy in a straightforward way. What Eyes Wide Shut is really about is how fantasy collides with reality. It's what it's like flirting with the possibility of infidelity versus how it might actually work out for you. You have your protagonist, your, your, uh, your shiny everyman American protagonist, Dr. Tom Cruise, and he's sent out on his quest by a revelation about his wife Nicole Kidman's sexuality. Not that she slept with someone else, but that she wanted to briefly and the wanting was so strong that she was willing to give up him and their daughter and their whole fucking future as she says <laughs> and then the desire faded and she was relieved but dr tom cruise isn't satisfied because he's he's terrified by female desire itself they have this this glorious marital argument which as an aside they're extremely stoned the characters throughout this argument and it, it produces one of my favorite line deliveries in any, any movie where dr tom cruise gets frustrated and he just says okay Relax, this pot is making you aggressive, which is the most smug husband thing to say, where you have just you have gotten yourself into a world of shit without even knowing it. It's just perfect. But he says, women, they just they basically don't think like that. And she responds, if you men only knew. And so she tells the story about wanting another man, and he's just broken. He's just freaked out and he's wandering around New York City trying to get over it. And the whole movie is he keeps stumbling into situations in which he has the opportunity to have sex, but it never actually happens. Because, like, the woman's partner interrupts, or Nicole Kidman calls at the exact wrong slash right moment, or he gets to the orgy, then the people running the orgy realize he's a comparatively low-class peasant who doesn't belong at their Epstein gala. And, like, the, the orgy itself is, when you watch it, is actually low-key funny, because Dr. Tom Cruise is more kind of frightened than he is turned on. 
Like at one point, a sexy lady comes up to him and asks him what he thinks of it all. And he says, I've, I've had a very interesting look around. <laughs> and that, I think, is actually a realistic and relatable exploration of desire. And because getting exactly the thing you want that you have fantasized about, that can be uncanny, actually, more than it is fun. And I think that I, I think you're right. That's what's, hap- what's happening to Damon here is not just a failure to get it up. It's like it's the fantasy suddenly becomes way too real for him. And take what you want sounds good, but the truth is that we don't necessarily know what we want until we try to get it. And that's against that's why I think that's why the movie's called Eyes Wide Shut. Because even as we try to unlock our true selves, our true passions, we find out that we're just we're masks all the way down, and maybe we don't know ourselves and i think that's it's so well handled that that's what happens to damon here that he has exactly his his you know his his taboo bride in this this den of sin and he can't make himself do it because he's like oh i never thought to ask if that's actually what i wanted to do i just assumed that this would be cool yeah um i think it's a very common trope especially in genre storytelling to have characters who don't know what they want and their major arc is to figure out oh this is what i actually want um and instead we're seeing something a little more complex and uh you know complicated it is something where it's like oh this is what i want but when i actually get to the point where i can have it oh i don't know about this anymore um and it causes a lot of you know introspection uh, the human heart in conflict with itself um you could imagine a million thoughts running through damon's admittedly very drunken mind at this point but it just like <laughs> doesn't help yeah i you know with nothing else to do he basically just leaves and he's not even ceremonious about that he just kind of darts off screen and rainera starts you know damon damon and my first thing is like Ooh, should you be using his name out in public like this? Although uh, the damage might already be done because once Rhaenyra runs out, a little kid, a little bird perhaps, follows her. Um, and this little kid will see report to Otto, a high tower later that night. Um, and he is presented as bringing word from the White Worm, which is Missaria, uh, one of her, the names of Damon's paramour, more or less, which is Interesting, we'll talk about it in a second, but we see this kid report to Masaria following this the next morning as well, which is where Damon kind of washed up following the previous night's activities. Um, and he's hungover as fuck, which is giving me Viserys vibes from the last episode. So absolutely, um, again, the brothers <laughs> are very similar. They drink hard and they have really bad hangovers. Um, but I think the interesting part, like I was saying, is the fact that Missaria or the White Worm might be working alongside Otto, or at least the information she has is open. Uh, just because we got so little information about Missaria in Fire and Blood, I just kind of had her mentally always aligned with Damon in a way. Just like I always assumed she was kind of working for him in one way or another. Um, this presents at least some possibilities that there's more going on with her character than I would have thought. That's what Damon does after he leaves. I think the more important stuff, especially leading into the conflict coming up between the Greens and the Blacks, is what happens with Rhaenyra and Kristen Cole. Um, because Rhaenyra, you know, returns to her chambers and Kristen Cole's like, wait, you were inside like three hours ago. How, what? Um, and she comes in and she slams the door at his face and then he knocks. It's like, dude, is everything all right? And then she kind of opens up the door and begins some helmet play which i just like to call out because we just did the aria chapter in a storm of swords where polishing helmets is used as innuendo for what gendry might or might not like sexually so using that helmet as kind of a sense of foreplay here i thought was very excellent 
Yeah, I loved the bit where, because, yeah, earlier in the episode, right before she finds the, the clothing left to her by Damon, she walks to her apartments, as she presumably does every night. And Kristen Cole says, goodnight, princess, as he presumably does every night. And she walks in, and then she has this whole crazy fantasy world. And then, yeah, she comes right back to her normal life and just walks back to the door. And it's just, it's really good acting as you see Kristen look around like, I'm not crazy, right? She already did that tonight. It's that perfect himbo energy. If you see him consider for a moment, maybe I am stupid enough <laughs> to have invented the first time she came in. And then he realizes, okay, now something else is going on here. Yeah, it's like uh, Marcus Brody when the tank goes off the edge in Last Crusade. And he's like pointing in both directions. Like first you were there, then you were there, and now you're back here again. And, like he's completely confused. It's perfect. Um, and then we get um, after, like I said, a little bit of helmet foreplay. They slowly, very slowly, start to get it on with a very sexual unarmoring of Kristen Cole. Um, one thing I like about this is that it really draws it out. It gives, if Kristen had any compunction to be a true and honorable knight, like Fire and Blood said, he had like an hour of getting undressed <laughs> to like turn around. Ample foreplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He has to remove all his armor, um, and, like his wrist guards, and then they have to unlace their boots. But I actually loved how this was shot. Like, they're smiling at each other, kind of laughing. Once Kristen kind of, he, he looks longingly at his white cloak when he first takes it off. Again, they don't say anything. They just let the visuals tell the story. But then once he's like committed to the bit, essentially, um, it looks like they're having a good time. We see them laughing as they're getting undressed. Uh, we see smiles on Rhaenyra's face even before they start actually getting to the coupling. Um, it's just a legitimately great little sex scene. Like uh, We get a lot of uh, shots of them through mirrors or through bedposts or through railings. Uh, just kind of an out-of-body experience because this is, like we said, a sexual awakening of sorts for Rhaenyra. And like the first time you have sex hopefully can be an out-of-body experience granted it's in the right you know a lot of times it's more awkward and weird but you know i'm sure one out of a hundred people has a great (laughs) first time experience with sex uh if that's what it is for rainiera well that's what's great we see both we see the the kind of rushed over the top too much version and then we see her choose something else that she really wants and yeah there's there's real heat between them it's a, a, a it's a well done genuinely erotic scene and I think part of what makes it interesting in the context of the episode is Rhaenyra was talking about how how stacked the playing field is against women and how marriage can be a death sentence, and it was for her mother. And this is this is one of those rare situations where it could be a death sentence for the man. Like if if, if someone walked in at this moment, Rhaenyra could definitely get in trouble for that. We see Viserys react harshly to the idea of her being violated by anybody but Kristen, i think it's fair to say would be dead meat like he would be lucky to be sent to the night's watch i think it's more likely he would just be dead there's there's so many different kinds of power dynamics at work in this episode that we see unfold depending on who the characters are and accordingly a lot of different kinds of sexual dynamics but for rhaenyra it's like this is the taking what you want that damon was talking about it's not in the the kind of the brash in public context that he was saying that in but for her this is taking what she wants she's like all that energy that that damon kind of brought out of her but then didn't satisfy she she brings it all home and again it's what i like in eyes wide shut is this this sense of bringing you close to sexual fulfillment and then pulling you back and putting you in that place of frustration 
And even like, you know, the, the first term I can think of to describe it is blue balls, because even even the language we have for this kind of thing is gendered. Like, how do we describe that? But for girls, well, we don't really have a, a, a catchy colloquial saying for sexual frustration for women. We didn't we don't come up with that as easily. We focus on, on uh, how the man reacts to it. And she also has that question of, of what you do with all that pent up energy. And I think the the answer here is the same thing as, as the end of Eyes Wide Shut, which is that you bring it home and you bring it to the one you actually love. It's not something that Rhaenyra, you know, feels guilty about or feels like she fucked up about because even in the next morning, um, Kristen Cole is sent to fetch her to be presented in front of the queen. And Kristen Cole comes in all head down, trying not to make eye contact, like his feet kind of shuffling. But Rhaenyra is just like beaming wildly at him. He's like, come on, come closer. You're allowed to like not just sit in my doorway. You can like come in and talk to me. Um, and then Kristen very meekly is like, uh, no, you got to go talk to the queen. I have no idea about what, and I'm a little bit worried what that might be about. But at least for the short term, it's not about him. Yeah, I love, I think she plays it really well, that that happiness she's experiencing. Because this is, this is something she chose. And critically, unlike the orgy scene, no one is watching when it's just Rhaenyra and Kristen Cole. This isn't for anyone. This is not a performance. This is not about politics. It's just them. It's It's genuine intimacy and you can tell because it sticks with her after it's done and what a great contrast that is to damon who fought this whole like multi-year war for the (laughs) stepstones and could not give a shit leaves it to the fucking crabs because none of damon's experiences linger in the heart the way he wants to look look at compare that rhaenyra's glow to damon's like hysterically bleak morning after with Masaria, who has sold him out and for good reason she sold him out because she can tell that he's full of shit when it comes to her and like that's that i think is what damon lacks but i think realizing that would require a level of humility and commitment that damon simply does not possess Oh, yeah, no, that's great. And that's, I think, giving life to that shot we were talking about early on about Rhaenyra and Damon working in parallel a little bit. We can see where Rhaenyra is picking up things from Damon, like taking what you want. But you can also see how she's doing things a little bit differently. Her experiences are meaningful to her in a way that they aren't for Damon, because I think Rhaenyra at some level is motivated truly from something inside of her whereas Damon's kind of like well this will get my brother's attention or this will piss off Otto Hightower um it feels less driven by his own personal desires for something whatever that might be um but you know a night of escapades is usually followed followed up with a night of or a day of accusations perhaps or uh gossip at the very least um, and this is uh, Otto, who we get a shot of him just kind of like sitting in his room, like thinking for a minute. That's like, a good shot. How, how mm-hmm. am I going to play this? Um, and then he walks down the hall and uh, walks into Viserys' bedroom or is allowed in. Um, and his daughter is still in bed, although I'm not sure if he notices that Alicent is there. I don't think it really matters. Um, but Alicent is watching, which once again keeps that um, light motif, not light motif, but that uh, visual motif of someone's always watching in the House of Dragon. It's like one of Terry Benedict's casinos. Um, someone's always watching. You have those those passages in the Red Keep. So though, even even though it's, I don't think, I think Alicent was just in the next room. But having those passages, those tunnels behind everything, it means that there's someone always watching. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Otto comes in and he's all kind of mealy mouth about there are some troubling reports about something that happened last night with your 
uh, daughter and your brother, and they were seen somewhere, and it was very unbecoming of a princess. And Viserys is like, dude, say the fucking thing. You came in here. I just finished having sex with your daughter. It is super early in the morning. Like, you can actually hear the birds, like, chirping their morning songs, like, during the scene. It's great. So if you're going to accuse my daughter of something, you better just out with it. I don't want to have you, like you know, have your monocle fall into your little drinking glass because you're like, my, you know, my dear Lord at all this kind of stuff or pearl clutching at it. Um, and that's when Otto, Otto basically says it was seen that Damon and Rhaenyra might have been coupling in a pleasure house. I love, I love how euphemistic Otto always is. Like, I feel like it's the foundation of his character. We saw it with him in the first episode, sending Alicent to comfort Viserys, never spelling out what he meant by it. And we see it here that he just, he can't, like, must I say it? I think he says at one point. And that really undercuts his whole pretension of that he's telling the king hard truths as a loyal servant. Like, no, you're not if you can't say it. Like, you know, I think about other hands of the king that we see dealing with uh, difficult kings, to put it mildly, people like Ned or Davos. And they they say what they mean, and they, they face the consequences for it. And, and But Otto is just, he's so uncomfortable talking about sex because... Sex is this area outside his world of using everything within you for gain. It's like it's this individual desire is something he's just he's just deliberately cut himself off from. And I like that Viserys has a little bit of savvy here. He he's kind of aware what Otto is up to. And he's like, are you having her followed around? Um, Are you trying to see if she'll goof up at any point so that you can position your grandson as having a better claim or as a more suitable heir to the throne? Um, You know, Viserys, like we said, it's not that he's completely bad at ruling. It's just nine times out of 10, he makes the wrong decision, but he still occasionally has that bit of insight or has some bit of cunning or canniness to his rule. And we see that a little bit here with him actually understanding what Otto's agenda is. And then we get Allison confronting Rhaenyra. This is all set up by uh, Kristen Cole fetching Rhaenyra from that scene earlier. And honestly, I think this is a super good bro move on Allison's part. Like <laughs> she overheard something and she's telling Rhaenyra before she has to hear it from Viserys or in front of the small council or any kind of other accusation or even just, you know, the gossiping of handmaidens. Um, She's here to tell her, you know, just face to face. This is what's going on. This is what is being said about you. It reminds me a little bit of Barristan and Jorah Mormont in season four of Game of Thrones, where Tywin Lannister sends them a raven that says, you have your pardon here, Jorah, you can return to Westeros. And Barristan goes and gives it to Jorah. He's like, I'll let you read this. You're never going to be with the queen Daenerys alone again. But as man to man, I'm going to be honest with you and say, this is what's happening. Here it is. Now I'm off to the queen and you're probably out of here. But I respect that. Um, Allison did not have to do that. Um, and... I think it kind of breaks her heart a little bit because I think she has an inkling that Rhaenyra isn't wholly truthful in this moment. And Rhaenyra is really kind of, she doth protest too much, swearing on the grave of her dead mother. And I think the key part here is that Alicent knows her father. She knows how Otto is. And I don't think Otto is the type of person who would just hear one filthy rumor and then try to make that as pretense for his own political gain. I think it would be much more measured, much more substantiated claim. Um, so I think she has she has an inkling that Otto might be onto something, even if he doesn't have the exact truth of it. It's so sad because, you know, Rhaenyra and Alicent, if you strip everything around them away, they could be friends as they were. But it's 
they can't anymore because of all of the implications that go with being in charge. Like in that context, this feels like an accusation rather than a warning as you were as you were describing it. And Rhaenyra can't really tell her exactly what happened. Definitely not all of it. Definitely not the stuff with Kristen Cole. Like there's there's just too much on the line for her to be honest. And you can't have that strong foundation anymore without that honesty. And I I love the irony that Rhaenyra did, in fact, have unsanctioned pleasure fucking on becoming of a princess maiden, etc. It just wasn't with Damon. So you you have this like secret potentially exposed, but it's the wrong one. And no one knows it except her and Kristen. I think that's that's perfect storytelling. Um, and there's like some good visual storytelling too here because there's a part where they're kind of holding hands like they're almost about to re- reconcile. But then Allison steps back when she gets the feeling that Rhaenyra might not be forthcoming with her. And this is kind of playing on that scene earlier where they held hands following Damon's return to King's Landing. And I think there's also something telling in that during this episode, Rhaenyra has always been how upset is Viserys going to be with the fact that I fucked off from his, you know, proposal tour or whatever you want to call that thing. But then Allison in this moment says the King tried, we tried to make these matches for you. So Allison is also involved in that. And I, Rhaenyra at some point is going to start being like, you're not my mother. Like, like you're not my real she's, mom. Mm-hmm. She's going to start seeing Allison as another manifestation of the systems or the forces that she feels are preventing her from being her because Allison's more aligned with the king than anything else. So while they have their confrontation, we have a much more fun confrontation with Damon and Viserys, which hate to say that I've been there, but like Damon, I've stumbled home <laughs> a very early in the morning, still probably drunk if not completely hungover at this point and as soon as he enters the red keep the kingsguard come and just drags him into the throne room um this is not a pleasant escort and damon shouting you know let go of me get the fuck off of me but no it's just we're we're dragging you and dropping you in front of the king yeah he's so blasé he doesn't even care again because nothing sticks with Damon. Nothing matters. That's why he goes so over the top. It's this this desperate desire to feel something, anything. And then when it comes to the actual payoff, he's just like, yeah, whatever. I'll just lie here. Go ahead. <laughs> and yeah, it's 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 the same you know, when a um when the maiden came to Allison to say that, you know, the king has summoned you this evening, you know, the booty call earlier. It's the same kind of language with the king's guard. So, yeah, the, the king has summoned you, my prince. When it's like, you know, that sounds very nice and diplomatic, but what that means is we're dragging your ass in there. And I like, uh, again, like we mentioned, Viserys is never on the Iron Throne. He actually enters from like stage right off to the side, um, which is just kind of interesting. Uh, I don't know if there's anything to note about that. And he's literally kicking Viserys while he's down. And when uh, Damon is so bold as to say, why don't I marry Rhaenyra because you're worried about her prospects with other people, Viserys puts a knife to his throat. Um, But I I legitimately don't think Damon thinks that his brother's going to kill him. Um, He just, like you say, remains blasé. None of this matters. Nothing sticks. My brother could have a knife to my throat. And I know whatever Uh, maybe i'll be banished by tomorrow but three years from now if i came back and gave him a hug i'm sure we'd be cool and viserys knows that it's not actually what happened that matters um because we we do the same thing we did with the air for the day stuff where damon doesn't really deny what happened even though we know like 
explicitly know that they did not have sex. But all of Damon's answers are like, what would it matter? Who cares? We're dragons. We can do whatever we want. We make the rules. Like, it's he is Targaryen exceptional, <laughs> exceptionalism, like, manifested or personified. Um, that's all he is. Um, and he could have just said, we didn't actually fuck, and that would 100% be the truth of it. Uh, but he, do, he does not give Viserys that satisfaction. Um, he just lets him linger on his worst thoughts. All power resides where men believe it resides, as Viserys will say later in the chapter. And yeah, Damon is going back on his own word to earlier when he said to Rhaenyra that you have to care about what they think of you if you want to rule over them. But with Viserys, he kind of gets driven into this position where he he just wants both of them to have no restraints at all, at all times. It's it's a it's a marker of how you can just be a different person depending on who you're talking to about who you're with, especially if you're a slippery a character like Damon. Yeah, um, and Viserys basically orders him to go back to his Royce wife. Um, but uh, one thing that's interesting is that um, I think one of the smarter adaptation choices they made is dropping Damon's love for maidens. Um, that is something very explicit in Fire and Blood that he loves to deflower maidens. I'm glad that they haven't really pursued that here. But in his mind, Rhaenyra is still a maiden as far as he knows because um, he does not know about what transpired with Kristen Cole and I don't know if that matters, but it's definitely just something like he still thinks she's innocent or pure, at least in that regard, um, not knowing what he actually set her off to. So um, he has not yet realized what it, actually he's done, um, although I'm not necessarily laying all that fault at his feet. It's an indirect consequence of his night with Rhaenyra that she she took that awakening and brought it to somebody else. And yeah, again, like when he, he proposes a match to Rhaenyra, obviously that will happen later in the story. But in the moment, it's the same energy as when he talked about having kids with Masaria back on, on Dragonstone. Like, he means it as long as he's saying it. As long as the words are in his mouth, he means it. Tomorrow? An hour from now? Who knows? Damon supposedly banished, or at least sent back to the Vale. Uh, we now get a chat between Rhaenyra and Viser uh, Viserys. And when Rhaenyra walks in, the, uh, the Valyrian steel dagger is just sitting in the brazier, being lit up. Um, and she picks it up. Um, and then Viserys, very similar to the previous scene, just enters stage right. He was like hit it, hiding in the shadows. I guess that's just his new thing now. He can't mm -hmm. sit on the throne. So he's going to be like the Shadow King. Um, but he comes in and um, they go over the Song of Ice and Fire. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a second. But he basically uses that to launch into a dad lecture. It's like every time like... My dad will always start his lectures with like a giant metaphor about like things in the old country. We used to do this and that's why you need to do this with your life now. Um, I feel like it's got that energy is like we have this promise. We have this bigger duty. Now, why can't you just be a good daughter and just do as I tell you? <laughs> can't you just start with that? Yeah, I know what you mean with those stories. Like I get it, Grandpa. I am the lobster or we are all the lobster <laughs> or whatever. There's a lobster story involved every time with this. And yeah, and it's, uh, you know, it's hard to argue in the abstract with Viserys's point that fending off the apocalypse matters more than your personal desires? Yeah, I think that's legit. I think the real question is, why does Rhaenyra having sex make her unworthy of fending off the apocalypse? How exactly has she put that role in danger? And that's why I like how the, the dragon dreams and the prophecies and the, the song of ice and fire, etc., how they play into this. Because you have this this godlike role, this otherworldly savior role, the prince that was promised capital P's but it can only be filled by humans, and humans want things. Things other than being the prince that was promised. 
And so you, you have this, this question, which is a very, very classical question, you know, old ancient roots that uh, George is drawing from in the storytelling here, which is, if we purge ourselves of humanity, then what is it we've saved exactly? Wasn't that human spirit what we were doing it for? You know, Viserys has one very specific vision of how he's going to kind of help this prophecy come to fruition. And that's just, I'm trying to prevent war. I'm trying to keep the seven kingdoms together. But it's more that he just wants to avoid conflict. He's not actively, like, if he really believed in this, he'd be, you know, make, maybe making royal progresses, maybe spending more time in the north, making sure the Night's Watch is well fortified. Like, there's a million things he could be doing if he was really trying to make sure the realm was well united. Um, even just strengthening Rhaenyra's claim to the Iron Throne following him. Um, if he'd put all these things, but his only mode for making sure the realm is prepared for this apocalypse is just no one fight on my watch. That's literally his only standard. Uh, but we do get a little pro quid pro quo uh, segment here because Rhaenyra does agree to marry. She will marry Laenor Valerian, but in exchange... She requires that something be done about Otto Hightower because the way that Allison approached her with those accusations just, you know, didn't really sit well with her. And Viserys already seems to be questioning Otto a little bit based on their earlier chat. Um, so I like that we're seeing some political savvy from her and her doing some actual politicking. like, yes, father, I will do the thing you want me to do. I am your political headache and I will fix that. But you need to help me fix mine, which also is one of your political headaches, whether you know it or not. Solid use of her leverage there, you know, that she is, she is correct that Otto is in it for himself, but she's also getting some payback against the guy who gave up her secrets to the king. And we were talking about, you know, the personal and the political, about how hard it is to be yourself and also play a role. And the closest I think you can come to squaring that circle is find ways, find things to do that are personally satisfying for you that are also good politics. And, you know, those, those are options are not always going to be available to you, but you have to seize them when they, when they come up. Um, and that leads us into the Otto dismissal scene, which in the back half of this episode, they framed Otto very deliberately. Um, usually when you kind of do that shot reverse shot thing with um, two characters talking, like the character on the left will be on the left side of frame and be facing to the right and they cut to the character on the right side of frame. And it's just like a very basic visual language. But they actually had Otto like... He was on the left side of Viserys, but then when they cut to the close-up shots of him, he would be on the right side of frame, and there would just be a lot of empty space behind him. And I can't really put a meaning to that, other than it's just very off-putting. Maybe it's showing Otto is off his game, or, you know, the best is behind him. It's it's hard to come up with a meaning for it, but it very much sticks out because it's not even how this show generally shoots, you know, two-hander conversations. Um, what they were doing with the mise-en-scene whenever Otto was squarely focused on was very interesting to me, so I flagged that. Yeah, it's interesting to watch Otto kind of go down here. I don't... And it's... it's I mean, the, the, the scene between Otto and Viserys, I, I guess it's not one of my favorites in the episode because I think it might it's a little longer than it needs to be. Viserys goes kind of on for a while. But I think what, what I get out of it is I don't think, I don't think Otto realized. I, there was that great moment you mentioned earlier when Otto is stealing himself up for talking to Viserys, Viserys about Rhaenyra. I think he, he knew Viserys would be angry and upset about that. What I don't think he realized is that Viserys would realize that his own intimacy has been violated by Otto, too. Like, it took Otto spying on Rhaenyra to make Viserys go, oh, wait a minute, you don't respect personal boundaries at all, so you definitely send in your daughter to seduce me, didn't you? Like, that that worked for me. That actually, that's the kind of emotional leap that I think everyone makes in their own lives, where 
Something that seems obvious to everyone else might not be obvious to us for a long time until something similar or related happens, and then we make the connection. We go, oh, that's, oh, you've been, you've been pulling that shit the whole time. Uh, Viserys finally catches on, I think. Yeah, and he takes it way back, you know, well before the events of this show. Um, he takes it back to his father, Balon the Brave, who was heir to the Iron Throne at one point, and there was a great hunt for him. Um, and, you know, he was a fabled warrior. Everyone liked him. And then five days into this hunt, his belly burst, which I just always assumed meant appendicitis. Um, I, assume, I assume that's the only way your belly can burst, but who knows? I am not a doctor. Um, but like, you know, now Viserys is like, well, if you did that with Alicent and you did this with Rhaenyra, who's to say your machinations don't go all the way back to when you were hand for Jaehaerys or um, anything or anything after that? So I, whether that's all true or not, I, I don't really think Otto had anything to do with Balon's death, although it at least, you know, that possibility is now out there in my mind, I think. Whether intentionally or not, this scene seeded that. But either which way, it's just like, oh yeah, Otto has been up to some shit, um, and that, and I think what really hurts is the fact that Alicent has remained a rock in Viserys's life, even if it's more of a one-way relationship. Uh, Viserys is definitely getting a little more out of it than Alicent is, but like Alicent genuinely brings him joy, and he genuinely cares for Alicent, and to know that that was also contrived in some regard, um, that doesn't sit well with him either. Which takes us to our final scene. You know, we were all waiting for Maester Melos to show up. He's definitely the most important part of any episode of House of the Dragon. Where's Poochie? <laughs> uh, but he comes into Rhaenyra's bedchamber with some moon tea. We get our first official moon tea sighting in this episode, or in this series, in this visual universe, this visual retelling of Westeros. Um, something we don't actually see her drink the moon tea. It kind of cuts to black before that. I don't think it really matters. I don't think this is like, did she or did she not drink it? It's just more that the show is once again trusting you with the visuals to understand what's happening. And I like the line about uh, this is to purge any unwanted consequences, which is meant to be the possible baby that Damon put in her that everyone thinks might be there. But the actual unwanted consequences was the sex she had with Kristen, whether she's with child or not because of it. Um, I think that's irrelevant, but that was the unwanted consequence. And that's going to be something that eventually pops and will eventually cause a huge political rift. Yeah, I love again, I love that irony where she does have this hidden relationship and she does maybe have a potential pregnancy that she could want to get rid of. It's just not what the guy everyone thinks it is. I think that's wonderful. And yeah, I love that it, it was. It took me by surprise when it cut to black and didn't show her drinking it. And I thought that was so good because then you're just left with that image of her looking at it like it's this horrible, malignant presence in the room that she just can't ignore that's poisoning this place. This, this you know, this place that was her sanctuary with Kristen Cole has now been, like, infected by this this reminder of what it's all for. It's just a perfect ending to the episode. This, 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 it's an intimate moment, but a horribly intimate moment. Like, this should be her decision, and it's being made for her. And I love that the maester, he seems, he seems surprised he even has to spell out to her what's happening. Like, she should have assumed this was coming. And like, yeah, like it's so cold that Viserys doesn't even come himself. And I bet if he brings it up at all in the next episode, it's going to be very much in passing. Like he's he's keeping this at arm's length. And so Rhaenyra, for everything she's been through in this episode, she's right back to where she started it. Right back to them. She's sitting bored, is waiting for the line of suitors to be done. Just the most intimate parts of her life are just taken away and harvested for the Game of Thrones. And she's she's right back there. 
So that, I think, is going to wrap us up for this episode on King of the Narrow Sea, episode four of House of the Dragon. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It always helps people find us. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastASOIAF or shoot us an email at notacastASOIAF at gmail.com. You can follow me at Quentin on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And you can check out my coverage of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. And you can also check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast ASOIAF. Recently, I did one of my Lord of the Rings episodes covering Book 5, Chapter 7, The Pyre of Denethor, one of my favorite parts of Lord of the Rings. That's up for all our $5 and above patrons. Uh, next week, I'm going to be jumping back into Star Wars, kicking off Revenge of the Sith for all $5 and above patrons. But before that Star Wars episode comes out, we'll be back in Westeros with A Storm of Swords, John 4, as John has his awkward reunion with his ex, The Wall. <laughs> That's going to be a good time. And then, of course, next week, we will be right back here with Episode 5 of House of the Dragon. So thank you so much for listening, everyone, and we will see you next week for more House of the Dragon. <laughs>